doing great. That was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. It was great you guys showed up. That was fun. I love that. Um, and uh, that, that DVD is for sale for $10.99. Um, no, I'm just joking. Not really. No, I'm joking. All right. Well, good morning, family. It's good, good to see you guys. All right. We are continuing our soundtrack uh, a series and through the book of Psalms this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, grab your Bibles, open them up. If you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian, you don't know where that is, put your thumb in the middle of the Bible, open up, you're probably going to hit it. And uh, you can ask someone next to you. They're pretty friendly here, okay? They'll show you where Psalms is. Uh, Psalms, um, this particular Psalm deals with the subject. It's a difficult subject. It's about sorrow. And uh, sorrow is something that we don't usually enjoy talking about. We definitely don't enjoy singing about it usually, uh, unless we're alone in the shower or something like that. Uh, But uh, thankfully, David does that exact thing. He talks about it, and he sings about it. And we are blessed because of that. And uh, we need to hear what God has to say through him. Uh, Psalm 6 is where we're going to be. Psalm 6. So uh, let's read the psalm together, and uh, then we're going to pray and jump in. Okay? Sound good? Psalm 6. Oh, Lord. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come in here this morning to worship you. And we come in here from different places, different frames of mind. Some of us are in sorrow. Some of us are disappointed or sad or grieving, Lord. And I thank you that we can come and we don't have to put on a fake face to be here. Because you know us and you hear us. God, I just pray that your power would come Uh, and and illuminate your own words to us today. We need to hear what you have to say, and we need help even understanding what what you want us to know. Lord, would you speak to us plainly and clearly and change our hearts, Lord. Let us worship you and find encouragement in you today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we do when we are overwhelmed by sorrow? Sorrow is something that Every one of us experiences at some point or another in our life. Now, uh, we, we, it may take different forms. It may last different periods of time for us. 
but it stings just the same, doesn't it? There is no comparing one person's sorrow with another person's sorrow because when you're in that, it feels pretty awful. It doesn't matter. What do we do when we are overwhelmed by sorrow? I'm not talking about someone taking your seat at church, okay? Or your parking spot at Fred Meyer when you're trying to pull in. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about someone giving you the one-finger salute on the highway on the way to work. You know what I'm talking about. That's not the kind of sorrow I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sorrow of thinking that you're raising your kids right, and you find out one day that your daughter is pregnant. And all the dreams that she had for her life and all the dreams that you had for her life are changed now. They're going to be different now. I'm talking about the sorrow of thinking you, uh, of, of coming to the end of your working career and watching the market tank right before your eyes. And all that hard work, that slowly building up that retirement for a lifetime just got blown to pieces now. That's the kind of sorrow I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sorrow of having nine members of your Bible study murdered by a racist in your own church that you invited into Bible study with you, like our brothers and sisters in Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston did just earlier this summer. What do we do, family, when we're overwhelmed by sorrow? It's a question we're all going to ask, isn't it? I think we do exactly what the Christians of Emmanuel Church did. Just one short week later, they prayed. They gathered together and they prayed to the God that loves his people. That's a big idea from Psalm 6 this morning. When we are overcome with sorrow, we need to pray to the God who loves his people. There's a concept that's central to all of the psalms in general, but this psalm in particular, and we need to understand what that concept is. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. Is that hot? Is that mic hot to you guys? Because I'm about to get loud. (laughs) Uh, It's the steadfast love of the Lord. This This is the foundation that David's prayer stands on, as it were. He knows something about God that is solid and strong. That God's love for his people does not quit. It does not stop no matter what. The Hebrew word that we translate steadfast love is chesed. That's a really cool word because you can kind of spit when you say chesed. (laughs) All right? I like saying it. Chesed means the loyal love of God or the never-ending love of God. Chesed is a special kind of love that God only gives to his people people that he knows. Chesed is not based on his people's loveliness. It is not based on his people's performance. Are you listening to me? It is based on God's promise to love them. He loves them because he loves them. Deuteronomy 7, 8 says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. Weren't that impressive? But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's why he brought you out with a mighty hand. He loves you because he loves you. There comes a point, like, love is unique. I heard a guy named uh, Edmund Clowney say, there, there comes a point when someone says, like, why do you love me? He was talking about, say there's a guy, and he's 
he's dating this girl, and she's saying, but why do you love me? And he looks at her and goes, well, I love you because this, this, you fulfill all my purposes. And she goes, oh, thanks. <laughs> right, how romantic. But instead, he looks at her and he goes, she goes, why do you, but why do you love me? And he says, I love you because I love you. Love is unique. There comes a point where there's just, there just can't be anything higher than love or if you've diminished love. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is the love of God. That is chesed love. God's love for his people. The closest thing we could compare chesed to is some people's fanatical love for their sports team. Like, that's the closest thing we might be able to come to understand this concept. The people pour out their affections upon the home team. They love the home team. It doesn't matter what they do. They're going to love the home team. They're going to root for their team. They love their team, though they trade their best players. They're going to love their team. They're going to love the team, no matter if they fail them in the playoffs. They love their team, even if they blow it in the fourth quarter in the biggest game of the year. A little too soon, or is that okay? <laughs> they're going to love their team. They're going to be right out there next year. They're going to be cheering, and they're going to be rooting. They're going to say, we're number one. That kind of intense, unshakable devotion is the closest thing that we have to the steadfast devotion of God to his people. And David knows that since he's in a relationship with God, he has God's chesed love. And that's what we need to know before sorrow strikes. We need to know, hey, I'm in a relationship with the Lord, and so I have his chesed. What do we do when sorrow strikes? We pray to the Lord who chesed's us. When we know that our God loves us, we can express our sorrow honestly to him. Isn't that good news? You and I can express our sorrow honestly honestly to the Lord. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. David says, Oh Lord, this, this, this is going to God. This isn't just going to someone else. He's going to God. He's directing it to the Lord. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, but be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly trouble. But you, O Lord, how long? David is pouring out his heart to the Lord right now. He's in distress both in body and soul. He says his whole being is in distress. It's not like he can, he can put this aside and go to work and just pick it up when he gets home. He, he can't avoid this. He can't ignore this. He can't get away from this. So you understand what I'm saying here? He, he, he does, we don't know what exactly is affecting him. We don't know what's coming to his life. He doesn't tell us. But it's affecting him whole, whole person. And I think he does that on, pur- on purpose so that all of us can relate to what he's dealing with, actually. I think he's being intentionally vague. David says he's languishing. What a, what a descriptive word. That means to remain in a prolonged time in an unpleasant situation without progress. To remain in an unpleasant place without progress progress. That's languishing. It's a great word to describe sorrow. Have you ever been there? Are you there today? David is crying day and night. He opens his mouth to speak, but he's reduced to sobbing every time his mouth opens. He'd love to talk to someone about what's going on, but he can't get the words out. His his lip quivers. He cries. Have you ever been there? 
Whenever you seem to talk, you just start, in, start into crying. He can't sleep. He weeps to the point that he's utterly exhausted, yet he can't find sleep. He's tired but can't sleep. He's languishing. He's in his sorrow. Guys, I want you to understand something. This is the king of Israel. Don't let that be lost on you. This is the king. This is the top dog. Buck stops with him. He has all the power. If anyone can change anything, if anyone has authority to do anything about the situation, it's the king, right? This is King David, the warrior that's killed tens of thousands. He's led armies into great victory after great victory. He's a military leader. He's a soldier's soldier. He's a man's man who's writing this prayer, this poem. And let's not miss this. There's not a whiff of suck it up, buttercup. He's not wearing a t-shirt that says pain is weakness leaving the body. It's not there. David's not faking that he's all right when he's really a train wreck. He's not pretending with God. And he's not pretending with God's people either. You, you see the little superscript at the beginning of verse 1? It says this is supposed to be sung by the choir master. That means the whole choir was singing this song that he wrote in worship. He's not pretending with the people of God. He's putting it right out there. He's putting it right out there. He's speaking honestly to God. And why is this? I mean, God already knows everything. He's not informing God of something, correct? So what's going on here? He's doing this because David believes that he's in a relationship with God, a a God that can relate to him. That's what he believes. And so you know what? That allows him to be honest with God. Instead of closed off, he can be open. And his relationship deepens. His relationship with with God sweetens. Because of the honesty, because of that openness he has with him, Exodus 3 talks a little bit about this. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad Land. We talked about this last week, if you were here last week. God knows his people, which means that he cares for and identifies with them. That's the kind of knowing. It's not being informed of something. It's a relational, experiential knowing of his people. Uh, he knows their plight. God is the God who doesn't demand that we walk a mile in his shoes. He ought to. He could do that, but he's not that God. Our God is David's God. And he says, don't, no, I'm going to tell you, walk a mile in my shoes. I, I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to walk a mile in your shoes. I'm going to walk a mile in your shoes. When David says to God, I am troubled, God says to him, I am troubled by the same things that trouble you. I have seen. I have heard. I know. I've come down. I am the Lord. When we know that God can relate to us, it allows us to be honest with him, and it it allows our relationship, our knowing of him to deepen, our knowing of him to sweeten. John 1.14, 
puts it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God knows the sorrows of being rejected just like we do. Isn't that great? God knows the sorrow of having children that resist him and rebel him, just like we do. He knows the sorrow of moving from place to place instead of having a permanent home, like we do. He knows. Guys, he knows. He knows. And he knows it to a far deeper level than we know. That's the kicker. (laughs) That's what's unbelievable and amazing about it. In fact, our religion is the only religion whose God dares to do this. Every other one says no. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Let's go up to God. Go up to that mountain. Go over to that place. Go find God. Go up. Go work your way. God says, I'm coming down. I come down. I come down into your mess, into your stink, into your sorrow, into your pain. I come down into that with you, as you, for you. So when you pray, pray honestly to God, knowing that he can relate to your sorrows. He has not stood far off where it's easy and comfortable in heaven. And just looking at you from a distance, he's, he's seen and he hears and he knows and he's come down through Jesus Christ. And so as we pray honestly to God, our relationship with him will deepen with each prayer. Though they're sorrowful prayers, the relationship will deepen. It'll become more real to us. Listen, our connection with him will become even sweeter after the sorrow than it was before the sorrow. Did you hear that? I don't think you heard that. We need to be honest so that our relationship with him will be sweeter after the sorrow than it ever was before the sorrow. We need to, we, we, when we know that God loves us, we can ask for grace boldly in our prayer. We can ask for grace boldly. Verses four through five say this. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David's situation is utterly and totally hopeless. Anxiety, deep depression, they've grabbed him. They've, they've completely surrounded him now and cut him off. There's no way out for him. They press down on him to the point where he's talking like, this is going to crush the life out of me. It weighs that heavy on him. It's bearing down on him. Only if God acts will he survive this. Only if God himself comes to the rescue will David find salvation. David is not like that tree planted by streams of water here that we talked about last week, remember? He's feeling like chaff. He's getting blown. Getting blown down the road. Blown away. And Sheol is going to be his home if God doesn't step in. That's how he prays. And, And by the way, what is Sheol? Isn't that a great churchy word? What the heck is Sheol? You're probably wondering. Here's Sheol. It refers to the grave plus. It's the grave and so much more. Sheol was the place where death ruled and reigned and has its way with everyone that's there. 
It's also a place that's lonely. It's dark. There is no life and there is no companionship. You're there alone. You go there alone and stay there alone. It's, it's in the furthest recesses of the earth, people believe. And so there is no light that can get in, and there's no distress signals that can get out. It's hell, if you think about it. That's really what that is. And the amazing thing for me, I don't know as you were reading this psalm this week but, and what you found, but what was amazing to me about this particular psalm is that David's suffering is his fault. He's kind of put himself in harm's way. He's put himself in this situation. Did you notice that? Did you guys catch that as you read it a few times? We know this because he says in verse 1, do not discipline me in your wrath, right? Which implies that he's living in a way that displeased God, and God's disciplining him rightly so to bring him back. Yet he has the audacity to ask for deliverance. He's getting what he deserves and says, God, stop. Call it off. That is a bold prayer, isn't it? That's a bold prayer. How can you pray that kind of prayer? I mean, what does David know that we need to know? So what David knows through hints and shadows and little peaks, we know fully through Christ. And it's that God delights in showing grace to sinful people. That should make you smile. <laughs> That's good news. David believes this, and so he asks God for the grace that he needs boldly in prayer, even though his sorrow is his own fault. At least in part, it's his own doing. And this is what Pat, the Passover lamb would point him to. Every year, it would point him to this sweet truth. That's what the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat pointed him to. It's what the entire sacrificial system would be pointing him to. The wonderful news that God provides a way to give life to people that deserve to die. The good news of God tells us that God delights in giving grace to sinful people. God's provided a way for us to escape our sin and the sorrow of our sin through Christ. Therefore, we can ask God boldly for grace in our prayer, in our sorrow, even when it's our fault. Romans 5, 6 says this, for while we were still Week. Not when we became strong, not when we got our act together, when we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Matthew 26, 37 through 38, this is in the garden before the cross. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those words sound familiar? From Psalm 6. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In the garden, Jesus took all the sorrow and all the anxiety that our sins caused. And you know what? It started to crush the life out of him before he ever made it to the cross. I'm sorrowful unto death. Just, just, just stay with me a little longer. He's feeling the weight of that. And it did. It crushed the life out of him. See, unlike King David, King Jesus went to Sheol. He went to Sheol. Because of his great chesed love for us, Christ went to Sheol so that we could escape it. He didn't say, deliver me, Lord, deliver me, Lord. He said, your will be done. 
let this crush the life out of me so I don't have to crush the life out of them. That good news. And that love, that's love. That's big time love. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that we stand on when we sorrow. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can boldly pray for grace even in our sin. Even in our moments of weakness, we can pray to him. We can pray like this. I know I put myself in this situation, God, but I cannot handle one more day of silent treatment from you. Can't take that. I need you to answer me. I can't bear up under this anxiety. I cannot handle one more consequence for my rage and my temper. I cannot take one more fight from my family or I'll fall into despair. Please, oh God, get me out of this situation or get me through this situation. But whatever you do, give me your grace. Amen. Family, don't wait. Please don't wait till you feel good enough to pray that prayer. It'll never come. Don't pray till you've got a string of living good and living righteous. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait till you're good enough to ask for help in your sorrow. That is not where your hope for help lies. You are not the hope you're looking for. Here's where your hope lies, and here's where Chad's hope lies. God delights in giving help to people who don't deserve it. I love that. We can cling to that. We can cling to that with both hands. So ask him now. Ask him boldly, without reservation. Ask him as often as you need to ask him. And you keep asking him. When we know that God loves us, we can trust God to answer our prayers. There's a turn in this psalm, and it's right here. Look at verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Have you noticed he stopped talking to God and he started talking about God to his enemies? Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. Who was greatly troubled at the beginning? David. Who was going to be greatly troubled? His enemies. They shall turn back and they shall be put to shame in a moment. There's a turn happening. It's like someone flipped a switch in David. Did you notice that? All that talk about despair is gone. Not a a blurb about it. No more weeping or sorrow is mentioned. There's been a radical change in his tone and in his perspective. David is talking like the victory's already been won. The fight's still on, and he's saying the victory's here. He's still swinging, and he's saying the fight's done. It's over. Victory is right here. Isn't that amazing? His enemies are defeated. And that's what's so crazy. Like, everything is still the same. Everything is still the same. His situation has not changed or improved even in the slightest. Nothing has changed. Oh, except David. Hmm. David changed. As he was praying and sorrowing honestly to God and asking for grace. Hmm. 
near as I can figure out, that's the only thing that changed in this psalm. David changed. He's been touched by God. So that, I don't know about you, that, that, that makes me ask the question, like, what happened? What is going on? He's resolved to trust God. He's resolute. I will trust the Lord. David is taking a stand against despair, and he's speaking truth to his own soul at this point. You notice that he hasn't really done anything yet except spoken. He's opened his... That, that, that may be all he could manage, by the way. Because he hasn't done anything, and that's the point I want you to know, is he hasn't really done anything except spoken. He's just standing He's just taking a stand. He's not progressing. He's just taking a stand. I'm not going back any further on this. He's exercising trust in God as he opens his mouth and proclaims that he has been heard by the God who loves him. His enemy's victory will be short-lived. They mock him for trusting God, who seems really far away, but they're not going to be mocking him for very long. David declares that God himself, God himself is on his way. God has heard his prayers, and God will make everything right. It kind of reminds me of that old song that says, it takes a worried man to sing a worried song. It takes a worried man to sing a worried song. It takes a worried man to sing a worried song. Worried now, but I won't be worried long. That's a great sorrow song to sing. David is taking a stand by telling his soul, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. No matter how much we understand God, we just can't seem to remove this this pesky ingredient called faith. Have you noticed that? It's just always going to be there. You can't understand God enough or give enough rationalization or enough evidence to remove the need for faith in God. All those things are important, and they're all necessary for having a relationship with God and knowing Him better, more accurately, deeper, truer, good. But they can never replace the fact that we need faith, need to trust in God, to experience God. To encounter him. Trust is how we experience the promises of God. Trust is how we apply the things we know to be true to our own soul. That's how it happens. At some t- point, we must believe, that, believe in God for the benefits to apply to our life. I mean, what good does it do for you or for me to know that God loves us if we don't believe it? Who cares if I know it and learned it in a class? What matters is if I believe it. What good does it do to know that God gives grace to sinners if I don't believe it? It doesn't do me any good. I haven't experienced it yet. Trust is how we apprehend truth. Let me say that again. Trust is how we apprehend truth. See, Hebrews 11.6 puts it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, draw near, experience, encounter him, that kind of knowing. They must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this doesn't mean that there can't be any doubt in our, in our prayers or any doubt. There's no room for doubting in our faith or whatever. We're always going to have kind of an impure faith, this side of the new creation, right? It's always going to be kind of blended and muddled. 
So it's not, that's not what this is talking about. What it means is that at our core of our soul, we actually believe that God will make good on his promises. And that's why we've bothered to pray. It's not how much faith it's not the purity and quality of the faith. It's what that faith is in. Jesus says faith as a mustard seed. So listen, the question that will confront us at some point when we sorrow is this. Will I trust God to answer? And the answer is yes. And I don't know about you, but trust might sound like this. I've seen enough of God's good deeds. I'm going to trust him. I haven't seen them all, but I've seen enough. I'm going to trust him. I've seen and heard enough of his wonderful truths. I'm going to trust him. I still have unanswered questions. I still got my doubts, but I'm throwing in with him. I'm dropping the anchor on the rock of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm not sailing around for a better harbor. I'm planting my flag. I'm standing my ground. I will trust the Lord. He has heard my cry. He has heard my prayers. I don't know about you guys, but from the moment my eyes wake up in the morning, I'm just going to be honest with you. I deal with this every morning just about. Every time I wake up in the morning, my soul starts talking to me. Little messages, little voices. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about. Because it happens to you, right? And my soul just starts talking. It just doesn't shut up all day. And every day, family, I've got to resolve to talk to my soul more than I listen to my soul. I literally, literally have to open my mouth. I pray, and I have to talk to God. I have to speak. I have to praise God for hearing me until my soul gets in line with that truth. Some days I win that fight. Some days I lose that fight. But that's the fight of faith. I always fight the fight of faith. Amen? What about you? What about you? Which do you do more when you're sad? Do you listen to yourself more or do you talk to yourself more? Um, Paul Tripp says, no one talks to you more than you. So my question is, do you do more listening to yourself We're talking. This is what God has said. This is what is true. Trust in the Lord, oh my soul. This week, I want you to just try something. Just call it an experiment, all right? Just try it. Whether it's on your own in the car, or it's with your spouse, or in a small group, I want you to incorporate this element of trust and praise into your prayer this week. Just try it. See what happens, especially if you're sorrowing. Just could just be just a sentence, just a sentence. I praise you, God, for hearing my prayer. See, after you have been honest with God, after you have asked him for the grace you need, praise him. I praise you, God, you've heard the sound of my weeping. I will trust in you. Amen. It doesn't have to be a lot. That's all it has to be. So just try it. Just try it. See how your soul responds. See how that starts shaping your own soul. Um, If you're new here, or if you you weren't here last week, we're doing a little experiment as a church together through this summer series of Psalms, all right? Um, And by the way, some of you have been getting back to me about this. Um, Cal has been. I appreciate that, Cal. Several people have been letting me know, hey, they've been doing the experiment. Way to go. Good job. 
And, um, but here's the experiment, if, if you weren't here last week. We're taking a few minutes uh, each day, and we're going to read the next psalm that we talk about to see how that shapes our, our heart and our soul before we get it. So next week is Psalm 11. And so the experiment is like just every day, it, it's seven times in a week. So you can do that all in a day or one time, one day a week. Read Psalm 11, take maybe three minutes, and then just pray. Lord, what do I need to know about you? And you're done. And that's it. And that's what we're doing together as a church. What do I need to know about you in this, Lord? All right? And so next week is uh, Psalm 11, I believe. All right? So I love you guys. I want to pray for you, okay? All right, let's pray.